Discussions with an accident reconstruction expert. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wheel Life. I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of the ACB Trust Solicitors. So how are you, Caroline? <laughs> I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm quite looking forward to getting out on the bike if I can this weekend. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Well, hopefully you'll get your mojo back again. We had um, a crack at uh, mountain biking down in Kent a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, well, it's a bit of a lie. My uh, son enjoyed the mountain biking, um, but doing some more leisure cycling, which is no, more your kind of thing normally. <laughs> yeah, but after our conversation with Adam, I think I've got to uh, do a bit more of just jumping on my bike to go to the Absolutely. Well, uh, cycling from A to B or from A to Z, whichever one you want. Today in this episode, I would like to welcome our special guest, Mike Scott, who is the principal consultant and director of Adduce Services. Uh, He is a qualified collision investigator and an expert witness specialising in forensic collision investigation and reconstruction. So his background is that he was uh, in the police force, in uh, Sussex Police, for some 32 years, uh, of which uh, about 18 of those were in the forensic collision investigation world. And he and I first met um, when um, I heard, Mike, as you were being the expert witness at an inquest, um, sadly, into the death of a young female cyclist riding her bike near Brighton. Mike, I don't want to know. I don't like to remember how many years ago that was. Um, But we've kept in touch since. And I'm absolutely delighted that you're joining us today on this episode of We're Life um, to have a bit of a chat about your work. So welcome. Thank you. Hi. So um, maybe you could just uh, give us a bit of an overview about uh, what you do as a forensic collision investigator. Well, as a forensic collision investigator, I mean, certainly during my time in the police, it was a case of attending fatal and life-changing incidents um, involving motor vehicles, pedal cycles, uh, vulnerable road users, and actually um, identifying and collating physical evidence at the scenes of the incident, and then interpreting that uh, evidence and information and providing a concise, in-depth report suitable for either the judiciary, coroners, or um, for legal processes through the insurance companies at a later date. So you obviously get to see uh, occasions when it's all gone wrong. I mean, so do Caroline and I. You know, we're all involved in the litigation world. So um, one of the pleasures about the this podcast is we often get to speak to happy cyclists but um, all too often at work we're involved with vulnerable road users where things have gone very wrong. In a nutshell what would you say is the single biggest uh, problem or the biggest uh, issue uh, uh, facing vulnerable road users and their involvement in accidents? I would suggest it's probably human error and it's 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 error on one party or part or the other. I think uh, There are a number of different areas that we can look at. I think the condition of the the roads doesn't help at times. Um, I think a number, certainly if you come out into the country roads, if we deal with cyclists, motorcyclists, etc., we're seeing the edge of the carriageway starting to break up. 
Um, so we've got a problem with that. But it's just in, in general, it's it's identification of certain hazards and the way that um, they're interpreted by the, the road user. So I was just going to explain why we might use accident reconstruction um, evidence in a case. Um, and then obviously, if you can go through what, what you look at and what information you use to build those reports. From our perspective, um, and you, you laid out there that when you used to visit as a police officer the, uh, to put a collision investigation report together, they are generally, they're only put together if there's a fatal or life-changing injury and somebody's going to be prosecuted as a result. Uh, the police obviously may attend normal accidents uh, and they'll do a police report and draw little diagrams themselves, but if the accident isn't of that severity that is going to necessarily lead to a prosecution you don't get collision investigation reports these days. However, the police may have gone out and um, obtained quite a lot of data. They just don't necessarily turn that data into a report. So they have, um, Mike will be able to explain this in a lot more detail than I can. They've got um, gizmos that they, they turn, they, gizmos is the wrong word, but they've got, uh, they've got equipment that they can wheel out that um, takes digital photographs of the, uh, the road, does measurements, and they keep them all on discs, and often uh, they don't turn that into anything because the case, so, thankfully, somebody doesn't die or somebody isn't prosecuted. So if the information is there, they just don't turn them into collision investigation reports. However, a civil claim might be uh, presented by the person who was injured, and as a result, uh, the insurance company and the solicitors who are involved, and also the claimant solicitors, might take that data and ask an accident reconstruction expert to have a look at that data and try to put together what happened um, from the information that they're provided with. Mike, do you want to explain a bit about how you put your reports together? Yeah, I mean, since retiring from the police force, or even the police force back in 2010-11, I've been an independent forensic collision investigator working for um, insurance companies doing the sort of work that you've just been describing. I think the equipment that you were referring to is the laser scanner type equipment where they actually go out and they can record the scene marks etc and then the vehicles are recorded with digital photography and that side of things is provided to the collision investigator or the reconstructionist and that combined with the other documentary evidence from the witnesses that were there any dash cam footage any recordings from the vehicles etc because the vehicles are getting ever more complicated now, but they actually store quite a lot of information electronically, which is capable of being retrieved. So it's basically taking a holistic view of everything that's there and producing a reconstruction report um, based not necessarily on attending the incident at the time, but on somebody else's recorded. As a matter of principle, I always attend the incident locus to uh, prior to completing a report so that I can actually get a good feel for what's gone on. Okay, so the foliage may have changed and in some cases the road layout has changed because of engineering works, but uh, it certainly gives me a, a better feel of what the incident is and the locus is rather than just looking at it on a flat piece of paper. I think that's a very interesting point because one of the... Um 
facts that is all, all, often, often the case is you or the accident reconstruction investigator will have seen the site. Uh, the claimant will have seen the site. Quite often the insurer at an early stage will see the site. But the lawyers, uh, I, I mean, never see the site. I can't think of when I have actually visited the scene of an accident that I have advised on or argued about in court and actually seen the road itself. Um, my my, role, my um, engagement is always um, the flat piece of paper or the dash cam footage or the video taken uh, by by you or the accident reconstruction expert. I have had the experience though of driving down a road and going this looks incredibly familiar but I've never been here before and realising I've sat and looked at an accident reconstruction report for two years so I know the, rep- the road very very well but I've never driven it before. Yeah that's true and but I mean or, or um, when it's a road that you know already because it's an accident that's happened to, in somewhere that you're familiar with but I think one of the dangers of that is um, interposing your own assessment on that of the kind of objective view or the objective photography or the objective assessment but I'm interested Mike when when you say about um, analyzing or looking at the witness statements when you construct your report because that's something that can lead into difficulties or I think one of the problems or the um, areas of, of, of complexity in using uh, accident reconstruction evidence is ensuring that uh, the expert doesn't tread on the toes of or, or, or um, um, uh, overstep the uh, judicial role in terms of evaluating evidence. And it's a very difficult balance between looking at information and providing a view versus taking over the role um, the judicial role. There's a very fine line, actually, between sort of saying whether a witness has got it right or whether they've got it wrong, and actually sort of interpreting what a witness is saying has occurred. I mean, sometimes it is easy to actually look at um, documentary evidence and suggest that perhaps, yes, that is correct, with and that fits with the physical evidence. Um, I think it's a cross-reference between the two. I don't think any forensic inclusion investigator would try and usurp the, the role of the court. I mean, that is... But it's the role is to assist the court in areas that perhaps we have expertise in that other members of the judiciary don't. Um, it's not a case of trying to say this witness is right, this witness is wrong, and this witness evidence is completely wrong. If there's physical evidence to support one case or the other, then it's it's important that that is provided to the court, um, and it's that interpretation of the physical evidence rather than the um, the opinion of a witness. I think that's the important point to make is that you're not making things up. You have to have the information there to be able to do your calculations about speed and throw distance and everything else. And if you don't have any physical data. You can't put a report together. No, because other, otherwise it's just rubbish in, rubbish out. <laughs> well, I, I think um, we've all seen reports, not from you, but we've all seen reports. And, and sometimes, it, it, you know, it, it is the fact that, a, that an expert's asked to give a view when there isn't anything physical there and they end up evaluating witness statements, which is obviously very clearly wrong. Um, but, I mean, I suppose where it might work is if you've got, say, a witness saying they 
were travelling at X speed and they passed the accident site at X time. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know, the pedestrian was standing waiting at the, at the crossing at that point. And that would give you some kind of data points to give an indication of time or, 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 or how far across the road they might have got at the time of the collision or something like that. I think speed is always something that is exceptionally difficult to estimate. And I think certainly a lot of witness evidence. I mean, if there's documentary evidence or there's evidence from dash cam or CCTV, static CCTV cameras, or there's, there's evidence from the vehicle or marks on the road, or more, inter- more importantly now, whether some of the, uh, the vehicles are fitted with journey data recorders, certainly the younger drivers as part of their insurance now, they have what they, they term as black boxes, which are journey data recorders. Um, and they record a, a, a vast amount of information, which is possible to interpret and then consider that information with the witness evidence to see how it correlates and uh, which is more likely in the circumstances. But I would never turn around and say, that witness A has got it completely wrong without explaining the physical side of things to explain why I would consider that that perhaps they haven't been mistaken. That fits in with a case that I've recently won at trial, which was a pedestrian versus car. And in that case, um, our driver estimated, when he was asked by the police at the scene, he estimated he was just that he was near near the uh, speed limit. But both accident reconstruction experts um, were able to show he was actually driving at about 10 miles uh, per hour under the speed limit, um, and he'd overestimated um, rather than underestimated. Um, and in that case, um, the judge's comment in his um, summing up at the end was, in my view, this is their evidence being the accident reconstruction experts, is not conclusive in this case and should be seen in the context of all the evidence available to me. However, the calculations which they have made are of assistance to me in determining the two main issues as to whether Mr Walker was driving negligently. And that came down to the two issues and one was to do with the speed he was going and also what he would have been able to see when he came off the roundabout because it was it was dark so we had conspicuity issues and things like that. Um, and the judge very much, he took the bits from the accident reconstruction report that he wanted and then he abandoned the rest. Well we know a little bit more damning was Master Davis in the case of Dominie and Reese. Uh, in 2020 uh, when he basically looked at a couple of accident reconstruction um, experts. I don't know, uh, Mike, if you um, have come across his judgment. You're certainly, as I say, not one of the people he's talking about uh, because naming no names, but he says, we do not have trial by expert in this country. We have trial by judge. Um, And that was a case in which there were two accident reconstruction reports Uh, The case was about a a motorcyclist and a car collision at a road road junction. And there were two reports, one from each side. uh, At the end of the day, at the end of the trial, the master decided that the uh, report had added nothing to the case except expense, but made exactly the point you've made, Mike, which was saying, um, you know, if there is no or no sufficient forensic material upon which an expert can draw conclusions you know, then the evidence is redundant and you're left with simply an evaluation, which is the very nature of what the judge should be doing. As part of my normal role, certainly as an independent uh, collision investigator, I would offer those that seek to employ me, 
I would offer a review of the evidence that's there and what the benefit of a reconstruction report would be. Because as you quite rightly say, if, if it's going to be of no benefit to the court during the process, then there's very little point in actually producing the report in the first place. Um, so I think from that point of view, it comes down to the, um, the solicitors and the counsel that are actually uh, addressing the, the case and also their instructing and the instructions that I would receive. So I guess you uh, might have a situation when you're um, turning down the instruction because it's not going to be something that's going to be of um, assistance overall. I can assure you in the last two or three months, I've turned down about half a dozen jobs. <laughs> so when you are looking at it, not looking at what you can't do, yeah. but what you can do, what for you is kind of, well, as, as when you get your gizmos out, for, to borrow uh, Caroline's <laughs> technical phrase, you know, what, what's your sort of solid gold? What, what, when, what makes you chuckle when you find it in the reports? What's the best thing for you? I think it's it's when you can actually look at certainly everything together and, and see that you can actually achieve quite a good report at the end of, and you can reconstruct it with value. And I, th I think um, when I emphasise with value, I'm not talking financially, I'm talking in terms of actually being able to provide an answer to a question that may be posed and may assist the court or the insurer or, or whatever in the process that's going through. And that can be just simply taking CCTV and playing it frame by frame or and just actually identifying certain points. The vast majority of certainly pedestrian type incidents at night revolve around visibility, um, who could see what, where, how and why. Um, and I think quite a lot of that is actually going to the scene during the hours of darkness, hopefully in similar weather conditions, and then looking and saying, well, you know, this is what the pedestrian could see within reason, and this is what the, the car driver could see, or the, the motorcyclist or the cyclist. So we've previously mentioned conspicuity, but um, and Emily and I gave our version of what it meant. Are you able to give your definition of what conspicuity I, means? I can give you... Um, a definition of it, and it's defined as those characteristics of an object or condition that determine the likelihood that it will come to the attention of an observer. Now, there's two types of conspicuity, and so if you take attention conspicuity, there's something that catches your eye, or search conspicuity, which is where you are actually looking for something in a deliberate visibility search. Attention conspicuity is relevant when considering encounters with unexpected hazards and search conspicuity becomes important in cases such as those where a driver is looking for a specific carriageway exit, crossroads or a uh, in the terms an address or something like that. So search conspicuity is going to be something like um, when you're looking to see um, road signs and now you know when road signs when you catch them with your headlights they become you know very very visible but yeah. kind of um, attention conspicuity is how, how obvious it is to see the cyclists when they're you know riding along the road and you're not expecting to, to have anything there and we've spoken before one of the dangers of, of uh, Caroline and my job is we become a little bit expert on all sorts of things and then um, present it as true expertise. But, um, I, um, you know, I've, I've been shocked in cases that I've been involved in at 
how difficult it is um, for a pedestrian in dark clothing to be seen and what a significant difference something as simple as wearing a white t-shirt not not even high visibility but just something like a white t-shirt what an extraordinary difference that will, will would make the way i always describe it is if you if you take a black cat in a coal coal bunker it's quite difficult to see but if you put a white cat in there then it's somewhat easier and it becomes becomes a contrast. I mean, something will be considered as having a high level of conspicuity if it stands out from its environment so that it is likely be to be te- detected by all reasonably alert drivers in time to take the required action. And I think if you are looking at wearing dark clothing at night while cycling, certainly on a country road that doesn't have street lights or it's not illuminated by other ambient lighting then it is very difficult even something as simple as wearing uh, very light colored shoes or having reflective stripes or reflectors on the back of the pedals or the shoes etc can make a difference it's it's something that is going to trigger somebody looking as they're driving down the road um, that there is somebody there i was going to say i wouldn't advocate and one of my pet concerns, if you like, is um, the amount of cyclists that cycle in black at night without any reflective or high visibility clothing. The amount of pedestrians that walk country roads or runners that run during dusk, etc., on country roads in dark coloured clothing. As Emily suggested, just lighten the clothing and it gives a gives the driver or the rider, etc., a little bit more time. Well, the other issue I, I have in terms of the dark cycling clothing isn't necessarily at night. It's during this time of year with low sunlight and dappled light going through trees. I live out in the country and I drive around and I'm conscious of cyclists because that's where I cycle, so I look out for them. But the amount I turn a corner and they're upon me and they're under a tree... I haven't seen them because you blend in just as well. And it's just, it's, I suppose it's just giving other people a chance to see you. As you said, it can be just one little piece of clothing that catches the attention. I'd like to advocate the fact that all cyclists, motorcyclists, etc., actually had, it was a requirement that they wore high visibility or reflective clothing. Yeah. I think we all have a responsibility to ourselves to make sure that we can cycle or we can walk or we can... Um, ride motorcycles safely and look after ourselves. Yeah, I don't know if it necessarily has to be high visibility. You've just got to give ch- people a chance to see you. Um, mm. And if you're entirely in black again in, at night, you, you've reduced that chance down massively. Um, so I wear high visibility, but I, I think it's also uh, that drivers need to have something to see. It doesn't necessarily have to be high vis. Just ha- give, them, give them a chance to, to see you. Yeah, I think that's true. But, um, you know, it's so easy to just have a kind of uh, high visibility kind of waistcoat thing in your bag so that you can, you know, go to the pub or whatever you want to do in your black clothing and look cool and then just slip something on over the top to go home. But talking about visibility, something else I wanted to talk to you about, Mike, is about um, the visibility of bikes to vehicles, in particular to lorries. Um, And I think, again, that's something that we often see in cases, um, which is how little cyclists understand um, about how difficult it is for them to be seen by vehicles. And we know that the law allows and does not... 
does not um, find as a matter of fault per se filtering by which we mean um, either bikes or motorbikes being able to pass through stationary traffic because they have the space and the size to do that but we also know and and um, um, the, judici the, the, the judicial comment has been made time and time again that it can only be done with the highest degree of caution uh, and with a very high degree of, of care um, and regard for that which is around you. Um, and I just wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about that, that sense of what a lorry can see and, and, and that level of visibility, particularly for bikes. I think a lot of work has been done, uh, certainly for goods vehicles, um, with close proximity mirrors, um, the number of mirrors that LGVs now have um, is good and the visibility that the driver has around his the cab of the vehicle and down the sides is quite good and in front, including a very close proximity mirror in front of them. But in addition to that, a lot of the vehicles now are being fitted with CCTV cameras so that they can actually look down the sides of the vehicles if, for example, the driver puts a left-hand indicator on the camera will in fact show him a view within the cab of the near side of his vehicle. That said, it's very difficult for somebody to see immediately behind the vehicle unless they've got a rear view camera fitted to the back. I think there are restricted areas. There are areas which are blind spots. Every vehicle has blind spots um, created by windscreen and door pillars, for example. And there, would, there can be areas where a cyclist or even a, a vehicle, depending on where it is at the time um, and the size of the vehicle, can in fact be within that, that blind spot. I think most drivers of goods vehicles are looking for areas and they, they do actually, as professional drivers, they do actually drive quite well in that respect. I think cyclists and motorcyclists certainly need to come within the defensive riding side of things. There is a book that has been produced by the uh, Driver Ve and Vehicle Standards Agency, which is the official guide to riding the essential skills. Now, they produce a book for cars, they produce a book for PCVs, i.e. buses and coaches, and they also produce a book for LGVs articulated lorries and rigid goods vehicles. Now, the essential skills which is help you through a lifetime of safe riding. And under the defensive riding, it actually says, defensive riding is based on effective observation, good anticipation and control. It's about always questioning the actions of other road users and being prepared for the unexpected so as not to be taken by surprise. Now, there are a number of areas that defensive riding involves, which is awareness, planning, anticipation, staying in control, and riding with responsibility, care, consideration, and courtesy. And I think it's the road is a shared space, especially in high traffic areas, and the cyclist or the motorcyclist has a responsibility to make sure that they are seen as much as they possibly can be and if possible make eye contact with the drivers especially at junctions and that sort of thing 
So in a way, that brings us, loops us neatly back to the point you were making at the beginning, which is um, that's as it should be, but when it goes wrong, um, very, very often it is due to rider or, or rather vehicle user error. So either the motorcyclist or cyclist not, not riding um, in that optimal way or the, the vehicle driver uh, not not looking out as much as they should or in the best way they should. Um, but I think, um, you know, that, that is a very interesting point. And, and essentially all the tools to keep us safe are to hand. We just have to remember... Uh, that humans are increasingly the weakest link in pretty much everything. Um, we just have to remember to, to do our, our best. I was just going to give the example, because obviously Mike was on about all the different mirrors and cameras mm. that have in a, a, a lorry now. So you've got a driver's got to not only think I'm indicating, I'm turning, I've got to pay attention to cars coming maybe towards me, I've got to check this camera there, I've got to check the mirror there, and it's quite a lot of information to take in. But I was... Um, a friend was recently on about a cycle. He'd been out the weekend with his group, cycle group, and a guy came up to just have a chat with them. And he is a HGV driver. And as part of their training, they'd been sent out on bikes in the local oh, area. Um, and he wanted to know if they'd been on his route because he oh, knew where they'd been cycling. And um, my friend was like, I thought it was amazing because he came up. One, it broke down the barrier that this HGV driver was coming to have a chat with a group of cyclists. But they'd sent him out on a bike, so he deliberately knew... Um, what it was like as a cyclist with all of these vehicles around. And I just thought that was a really good approach yeah, that um, does to, to look at things differently. Yeah, that does sound like a really good good example of a, of a sort of best practice. Um, but also, I would like, before we run out of time, because as always, chat, 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 um, Mike, ask you, um, one of Caroline's absolute pet things is e-scooters. <laughs> and we, we can't have an episode without a mention of e-scooters. And you and I had a bit of a chat about them and what you're sort of seeing in the accident world in the role of, uh, uh, of e-scooters. E-scooters, I mean... Uh... There are a number of trials that are going on with hiring of e-scooters and they're regulated, it's my understanding, they're regulated quite well with insurance and um, all sorts of other things and that they, you have to have a, a driving licence and various other requirements. The difficulty is that you can have a six or a seven-year-old buy or the parents buy or somebody buys them a small e-scooter and they can't use them on the pavement they can use them on private land but they can't use them on the pavement and they can't use them on the road but that doesn't stop them now i think one of the difficulties is is the fact that uh, certainly with e-bikes there are examples now of restrictors being taken off the speed restriction side of things yes it causes the bikes to go that much quicker but we've got to concern ourselves i mean i think it's it's a problem that is going to come to the fore in the next few years i think there's already been one or two high profile cases where um, individuals i think the one in london as uh, as a specific example but it was my understanding that there was a, a punctured tire or a deflated tire involved in that one and I think when you actually start looking in terms of where they are on the road, they're a mechanically propelled vehicle, whether it's an electric motor or whether it's a combustion engine, they're still being used um, on the road. You can't use them on the road without any insurance. And I would suggest at the moment, uh, a helmet as a minimum, 
for a safety helmet. Again, the clothing side of things, make sure that you can be seen. But at the same time, I would suggest that they shouldn't be used on the footpath and they shouldn't be on the road, other than in the controlled areas with the the higher agreements. So regulate while we've got a chance before it all goes pear-shaped. Is that your view? Yes. (laughs) I just wanted to ask one question in terms of um, e-scooters and I suppose um, cyclists as well in that a lot of people don't realise how quickly a cyclist can go and also the speed of the higher scooters is 15.5 miles an hour. And in terms of a driver's perception, uh, PRT, their um, perception reaction time. That's the one. Yay! Um, (laughs) Their PRT, um, in terms of a driver looking at a cyclist or a driver looking at an e-scooter, it's going to take them a while to get used to the fact that this person isn't a pedestrian coming towards me, it's somebody coming towards me at 15.5 miles an hour, yeah. standing upright. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, you know everything, it, it takes time. I mean, perception reaction time can, can vary considerably, but it, it, takes, it takes time for the driver to, to identify what that hazard is. And if it is a pedestrian, right, you're constantly evaluating what's going on. But as you say, I mean, 30 miles an hour on a, on a push bike or on a cycle, right? Or even on a motorcycle, it's 13, you're traveling at 13 and a half meters every second. And I think if you look at sort of, you know, I think it's 13.41 to be precise, but if you think that you're traveling that, now, if it takes you two seconds in which to analyze the fact that you've got somebody traveling towards you at 15 miles an hour, right? You alone have traveled towards them something like 26, 27 meters, let alone the distance that they've covered coming towards you. So um, I I think it's going to be one of those difficulties. And I think that we need to, they're not going to go away. I think they're um, something here um, to stay. And we just need to make sure that we get it right at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, what that's making me think is, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is because this is a completely new technology and it's the sort of um, the shock factor of somebody who's standing upright and therefore in your mind's eye they're a pedestrian uh, coming three times roughly three times as fast mm. as you expect them to. And it's that, that suddenly made me think about, um, you know, in, a, in sort of 100 years, we're probably all going to laugh at that because, of course, you know, the idea of people um, being on scooters and e-scooters will be completely normal. And that made me think about the kind of history of cycling and how... You know, I think uh, originally women, it was thought that women would suffer internal damage if they went on a bike because it would make them move too fast. And, you know, that that sort of whether we're in the realms of the next generation. Um, now, that might be an episode, the history of women in cycling. Anyway, um, but, um, um, you know, that, that, that sort of issue, I think, is getting used to that, let alone responding to them. And finally, I think the last um, question I had for you, Mike, um, was um, you told me you had a Segway case. Now, that really is... Um, that really yeah. is a vulnerable road user of the kind we don't often get to chat about. So um, as far as you're able, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a young child, I think they were nine at the time, that was riding a Segway um, along the footpath, didn't have um, no helmet, no protection at all, and rode straight out in front of a van that w- wasn't travelling very quickly. It was a third... 30 mile an hour limit and the the van wasn't traveling any more than I think it was about 22 23 miles an hour the 
Segway was hit. The child was obviously seriously injured and ended up with an acquired brain injury. I'd just like to finish by saying one more thing, and that is safety. Uh, You should put safety above all else. This means having real concern, not only for your own safety, but also that for other road users, including the most vulnerable, those walking or cycling. Expect other people to make mistakes and be ready to slow down or stop, even if you think you have priority. Never assume that any other road user will follow the rules. They may break them, either deliberately or accidentally. Your safety lies mainly in your own hands. The better your control of your cycle and road space, the safer you'll be. That was a quote from the official DVSA Guide to Riding, uh, which is a publication, as I said earlier, from the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency. Well, I think, Mike, that's a really important message actually and a, and, a, and a good note on which to end one of the things we often see um, from litigation is the creed occur but I had the right of way or I was in the right um, and I think it's a salutary reminder that kindness to others on the road whatever their means of transport or whatever their method of transport uh, is the best way for us all to stay safe comes back to what Mike said about making eye contact with people as well I think that makes a huge difference because it humanises, it goes back to what we said in the previous podcast as well, it just humanises the person in the car the per- or the person on the bike. It's remembering that we are all all in it together, I think is probably the best way to wrap it up. And thank you, Mike, for being uh, in this with us. Um, it's been a great episode, really lovely to have a chat with you and see you again after far too long. Uh, thank you for coming to share some of your views and expertise and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Um, and to our one listener or both our listeners to hearing you on the next episode of Wheel Life. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcraft.com and 39essex.com.